This is Stacy Harbaugh and Elizabeth Walsh with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Democratic Governor Tony Evers and Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature reached a deal today on a plan to boost state funding for local governments. The plan had hit a sticking point this week as leaders disagreed over whether Milwaukee City and County could raise the local sales tax without voter approval. Milwaukee officials warned that without the aid, the city would face bankruptcy by 2025. Reporting from Wisconsin Public Radio and AP News reveals that local governing boards would need a two-thirds majority vote to raise the sales tax, but won't require passage in a voter referendum. Additionally, cities and towns with a population under 110,000 people will receive increased funding that can only be spent on police and fire protection. Both houses of the legislature are expected to vote on the plan next week. A federal judge likely won't stop a Wisconsin tribe from blocking roads on its reservation. The Lac de Flambeau Band of the Lake Superior Chippewa has had friction with the town of Lac de Flambeau and property owners over road access. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that during the 1960s, the tribe granted the town access to about a mile of roads on the reservation. The agreement expired about a decade ago, and the tribe and town haven't come to terms on a new accommodation. In January, the Tribal Council voted to barricade the roads, then agreed in March to remove the barricades for 90 days in exchange for $60,000. With the 90 days near an end, landowners asked Judge William Conley to issue an injunction prohibiting the barricades' return. Conley promised a written opinion soon that will deny the request. Tim Michaels, the Republican candidate for governor last fall, is back in the headlines after suing an organizer who hosted his rallies during the 2022 midterm. That's after the organizer, Bob Donnell, publisher of Wisconsin Conservative Digest, filed a complaint with the Wisconsin Ethics Commission against the Michaels campaign. He says that staff verbally agreed to cover his costs for hosting seven events for the campaign, Donnell says he spent at least $50,000 to organize the events. Michaels is suing Donnell in Waukesha County Court for, quote, aggressively spreading false and malicious lies, unquote. Michaels' attorney is accusing Donnell of using the Ethics Commission for extortion. True State's president and CEO Robert Turnzow announced his retirement yesterday, days after striking workers returned from the picket lines. True Stage is a multi-billion dollar Madison-based insurance company that has seen the number of union-eligible employees diminish over the years. The workers' union, OPEIU Local 39, tells the Capital Times that turns out to blame for the shrinking union presence, saying he's the first CEO to refuse to meet with the union since the office unionized in the 1940s. The union and True Stage have resumed negotiations, but the company canceled two bargaining sessions this week. The union plans on resuming its strike within 30 days should the bargaining process stall. Union workers have been without a labor pact since February of 2022. Turns out plans on stepping down on October 1st. Collectivo Coffee Roasters is having better union luck. After more than a year of negotiations, employees of the Collectivo Coffee have ratified their first contract. 95% of members approve the contract that contains improved paid time off, a new schedule policy, and provisions for raises. 
The Wisconsin Examiner reports that the agreement makes Collectivo, which has 15 shops between Illinois and Wisconsin, the largest coffee chain in the country with an active union contract. Artist Austin Brantley, in collaboration with the Madison Arts Commission at Madison College, will produce a commissioned public sculpture for Madison's Darbo Worthington neighborhood, the city of Madison has announced. The sculpture's exact location, as well as the installation date and unveiling, are to be confirmed in 2024. The Detroit-based sculptor will offer a demonstration of his work Friday and Saturday at Madison College. And now, on to today's top stories. A newly proposed bill would address how early literacy is taught in Wisconsin. The bill waves in, wades into a lively debate among educators about what's the best way to teach reading. WORT producer Nate Carlin has the story. A group of Republican lawmakers began circulating a bill today that would address literacy in Wisconsin. Senator Dewey Strobel, a Republican from Sockville, co-authored the bill. He says it's been a long time coming. This is really a great day for Wisconsin because our job here, our main job as leg- legislators really is about the next generation. And the next generation is about education. And sad to say, over the past couple decades, we've been failing in teaching reading to our kids. The proposed bill would emphasize phonics, which teaches children the sounds that letters make and how to put those together as words. That's in contrast to the whole language method where educators teach children to recognize words by themselves without breaking them down into individual letters. A third method, called balanced literacy, uses a mix of both approaches. That method, too, has come under fire for not having outcomes superior to the other two ways. The new bill would bar public elementary schools from using the three cues approach, which is a common way to teach whole language reading. In three cues, children are encouraged to use context, grammar, and letters to decipher a word they're having trouble reading. The method, says critics, produces lower literacy when compared to a phonics approach. The bill would also add a staff of 64 new literacy coaches that would circulate across state schools to help with teacher training. The bill sets aside $50 million to pay for the staff. A previous bill, introduced in 2021, did not include such a provision, and Governor Evers vetoed that bill. Representative Joel Kitchens, a Republican from Sturgeon Bay, says that this time he is hopeful that Democrats and the governor will sign on. And this is really an exciting day. It's been sort of too long in coming, and we've put you know put months of effort into this, getting everybody on board and making every getting everybody to a comfortable place with it. So I, I believe this will this bill will have significant bipartisan support. Already, the bill has received pushback from the Department of Public Instruction. Currently, the proposed bill contains a provision that would prohibit schools from allowing a third grader to graduate to fourth grade if they do not meet the required reading standards. State Superintendent Dr. Jill Underly said in a statement today that despite working with legislators for months on the bill, she can't support it as it currently stands. She characterized the bill as a non-starter because of its third grade retention policy, saying it would be harmful to learners, families, and communities. As science emerges over how young people learn to read, some schools have returned to phonics as their primary approach. That includes the Madison Metropolitan School District, who just introduced a new reading curriculum this year that moved from the balanced literacy approach more firmly into the phonics camp. Reporting for WORT News, this is Nate Carlin. City officials have been gearing up for this Sunday, anticipating the launch of the city's redesigned bus system. Come June 11th, bus routes will change across the city, and riders will more than likely need to adjust their commutes. 
WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. Um, I'm kind of really into the bus in general, so uh, I've been really interested in the BRT um, since I live just off East Wash and being able to be have super close access to it. Um, that was just kind of exciting to hear about and, and uh, notice the way that they're shaping up the stations and all that. I've been paying a lot of attention to it. Do you know, will it like affect you in any serious way? Not in any serious way. I think that I might have to walk a little bit further because I don't think the C goes around the square anymore, which I think the 7 and the 4 both maybe used to do that. Um, but it's only a couple blocks different, which for me, it's not a big issue. Uh, I think that any change could be positive. Um, I heard that it's supposed to make it more efficient. I'm not... I. I mean, my hopes aren't through the roof, honestly. Uh, I'm used to riding Metro in Chicago, where everything is much more, um, like, kind of streamlined and uh, reliable. So I'm just excited to see if this will actually, like, improve their scheduling. I'm used to taking the bus basically, like, from my house directly to work. Uh, and I feel like it's it might add, like, maybe five or ten minutes to my trip, which is not ideal. but. I don't even really know what my route is going to be yet, so. That was Chris Sewell and Kenny Raker, two bus riders in downtown Madison, discussing the redesign of the city's bus routes, which will take effect this Sunday. Buses will switch from a numbered to a lettered system overnight on the 10th, nearly all transfer points will close, and officials say that each of the more than 2,000 existing stops will undergo changes of some kind. System-wide changes to public transportation invariably require planning and adjustment from those who depend on the buses to get from point A to point B. For example, if I wanted to travel to WORT station from Breeze Stevens Field on East Washington, that route will not stay consistent between today and Sunday. Today, Google Maps suggests a three-minute walk to Route 15, followed by an eight-minute walk from Broom Street to Bedford Street. Come Sunday, this will be Route B, boarding at the same stop but disembarking on University and North Francis. This adds an extra four minutes walk on the same trip exemplifying small alterations that are taking effect across the city, literally overnight. This redesign comes in the midst of the sprawling, citywide construction of new bus stations with modernized features called Bus Rapid Transit. BRT is a signature project of Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, who touted BRT in her re-election campaign this spring. It's also one of many efforts meant to address Madison's growing population, which is projected to explode in size in the coming decades. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says with more people, more efficient commutes are essential. City officials have been careful to emphasize the difference between BRT and the reorganization of bus routes known as the network redesign. But the two are at least related. Here's Mike Chekvala, Madison's transportation planner, summarizing the distinction. So the transit network redesign has everything to do with where the routes go and how often and when they run. So the, the route network so if you think about our route network, it's a map with a bunch of lines on it that has, you used to have numbers on it, now it will have, the routes will have letters. So it's the combination of those routes, where they go, and the schedules, how often and when they run. So that's the transit network redesign. It's taking our existing service, saying, okay, we have 50 buses and they're, they're doing these old routes, and then we're going to, the number 50 doesn't matter, but... We have, we have these buses, we send out, you know, a number of buses every day and they go out and drive certain routes today. It's, it's rearranging those, those route, those same buses into different routes, doing, doing different routes and different schedules. So it's uh, operationally speaking about roughly cost neutral. 
it, that's a little bit complicated because we're still we're recovering from COVID and, and, and that kind of thing. But it's essentially operationally cost neutral. It's just rearranging the routes. Bus rapid transit is all about the infrastructure. So bus rapid transit is all about, uh, the east-west line is all about Route A and improving the infrastructure along Route A. The seamlessness of this redesign is fairly user-dependent, meaning that riders must be aware of and plan for an alteration to their routines. Chekvala says he's been riding the buses himself in order to meet people where they are, with mostly positive and informed responses. Uh, I have been personally riding buses asking people if they know it's coming up, if they have any questions or concerns. The vast majority of people are saying, yes, we know it's coming. Others, including Gloria Reyes, who ran against Rhodes-Conway in this spring's election, have expressed concern that network redesign will disproportionately inconvenience riders with language barriers or limited access to the Internet. She asked, quote, where are the voices of our most vulnerable populations? Unquote. The city has conducted an equity analysis of the redesign. That study shows that the redesign will benefit underserved populations as much as white and better off neighborhoods. But that study has been criticized by detractors, too. Metro Transit launched a program meant to address some of these concerns, hiring in-person navigators called ride guides. The guides don yellow vests and stand at bus stops, community centers, and employment centers to instruct riders on the new routes. They are paid $25 hourly to hand out maps and schedules while providing personalized advice for people struggling to find out which bus to take. The ride guides are slated to reappear in August so they can assist returning students, though the UW campus routes will remain largely unchanged. Metro's paratransit service will continue to be available to individuals who can't use the city bus service due to a physical, sensory, or intellectual disability. But but a written application and in-person assessment is required to use the service. Officials encourage riders to review any upcoming changes on mymetrobus.com or study the Google Maps and Transit apps, with the reminder to ensure that June 11th is set as the date of travel. One anonymous Metro Transit employee told me today that he anticipates a chaotic few months ahead. He's been relearning his routes, along with all of his colleagues. He says he hopes that these changes will be for the better. And this isn't the end of tweaks to bus routes. Chekvala says bus riders should share honest feedback about the changes. That feedback will be considered in another redesign tentatively scheduled for December. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The leaders of several African-American churches have been marching in local neighborhoods. They're marching to amplify the voices of bereaved parents, concerned and tired communities, and against what they say is an unprecedented amount of crime and gun violence in Madison. WORT's Sholly Pittman has more. My sign reads, enough is enough. Men walking for peace and nonviolence. That's Ron, a member of the New Covenant Church of Christ. Led by Pastor James Monroe, Congregants at New Covenant Church of Christ, along with other African-American churches, have been marching in Madison neighborhoods for the past few weeks. They say they're hoping to send a message of love, nonviolence, and support to youth, particularly young African-American men. But the marches are open to everyone. I joined a crew that assembled outside Leopold Elementary last Saturday morning. Over the next several hours, we'd march in the Arbor Hills neighborhood, just south of the Beltline, next to Fish Hatchery Road. People would look on from their yards. Occasionally, the group would pause so several faith leaders could stop, talk, or pray with a neighbor. This is the area that we drove through yesterday, and the, there was an ambulance, fire truck, 
uh, and a man was passed out, and we had prayer. That's Dora Monroe, wife of Pastor James Monroe. So this, this is one of the second marches that we've done as a ministry. My husband and I have kind of tried to implement a vision that we believe God has given us. We did marches back in 2008. And this is one of the communities that we targeted. Uh, uh, this community, Allied Drive, there was a bunch of shootings and stuff going on in the community at that time. And so we kind of came together, had a community meeting. Everybody okay? Anybody and then, and then uh, we formed a march, sort of similar to this coming up against violence. Jimmy Duncan is a member of the New Covenant Church of Christ, too. He was there on Saturday recording the march for his TV show and radio show, Waterfall Worship, on 103.5 FM in Sun Prairie. I'm coming out to show my support to the uh, community because we do need a change in these neighborhoods. And we, we need all children, not just black children, but all children to be safe and sound, you know, walking in these neighborhoods because some of these neighborhoods, they are mixed and there's all different types of violence and stuff in these neighborhoods that nobody talks about. You know, there's hate crimes, there's drug crimes, there's uh, gang violence crimes. And, you know, we just need to educate people and trying to get people to understand that God loves them, that, that God has not abandoned them. Reverend Dr. Marcus Allen is pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church, who's helping organize the marches. Yeah, so, so we know we live in Madison, which is 6% uh, African-American. That's only about 20, 25,000 African-Americans in the city. Uh, but when we look at the issues and the disparities, African-Americans are at the top of the list of everything. Housing, medical, health disparities, food insecurities, education, incarceration. Um, and so that, that is just a continuing trend that's happening within um, the context of what many have labeled as one of the top three or even top five best cities to live in in the whole United States of America. But it's not the same uh, for um, those who are impoverished uh, or those who are struggling uh, just, to, just to get by. Uh, but our goal is to pray, uh, let God do his work. Uh, but then also come out here and show uh, everyone in these communities that uh, the church cares about them, the church loves them. We see them, we know what they're going through, and we want to be here as an aid and a support to help them manage life when it feels like it's unbearable. Pastor Monroe says the marches have picked up steam. And we're going to amplify and amplify and amplify until this community knows, first and foremost, that black people are no longer silent. We must speak out against what we see taking place in our own community. Someone needs to amplify a voice every time we lose a young man or woman in our communities. And I'm not just talking about black, I'm talking about anybody in our community that's dying to unnecessary and senseless violence. Someone needs to open their mouth and say, we don't want it. Another march is set for this Saturday. The group will meet at Elver Park at 9.30 a.m. and head over to Tree Lane and Schrader Road at 10 a.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shali Pittman.
The Wisconsin legislature passed a bill this week that would increase punishment for drug sellers who are inadvertently responsible for drug overdoses. Reporter Nate Carlin sat down with ACLU Wisconsin's advocacy director, Amanda Merkway, and John McCray Jones, an ACLU policy analyst, to discuss the ramifications of the bill. So can you just say uh, your name and your position? Sure. Uh, Amanda Merkway, um, advocacy director for the ACLU of Wisconsin. John McCray Jones, policy analyst for the ACLU of Wisconsin. Yeah, can you, can you maybe a little background on what exactly Senate Bill 101 is and, and maybe uh, lend bias laws more generally? Cool. So Senate Bill 101 basically raises the maximum penalty from 40 years to 60 years for someone who shared or sold a drug to someone that overdoses. So right now, as it's written, you can go to prison for 40 years and they're upping it to six years. Is that right? Yep, exactly. And, and the idea is that this would change behavior in some way? I think that like when you look at unbiased laws, we've seen that it doesn't change behavior. And I don't think that upping it from 40 to 60 years is going to change behavior. We found, we know that punitive approaches to drug policies do not work. It doesn't deter people from using drugs. The thing that we're scared about is that having this circulating in the media and people talking about it, it's going to scare, scare people from calling 911. And they're going to stop this type of bill, just talking about it, is going to take lives away. So, yeah, I saw the uh, statement, it looks like you put out, John, about the um, y- your guys' uh, opinions about this increasing penalties for distributors. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that? The danger is that this doesn't do anything to prevent people from dying of opioid deaths. Tons and tons of research have demonstrated that you can't scare or lock people away from using drugs. Uh, the reason that why people turn to these drugs are because of socioeconomic reasons. And trying to incarcerate your way out of that does not address the underlying issues of why people turn to these drugs, which tons and tons of research shows that it's economics, it's a loss of community, it's a loss of hope. And incarcerating people and making them lonely and taking away all those resources from them actually leads to more people turning to drugs. And we have 40, 50 years of evidence and anecdotal examples of since the war on drugs of why these types of policies to address the drug issue that we have here in America don't work. Yeah, can you, can you talk a little bit about like the the way that this is sort of framed in the bill is that it's about kingpins and, and distributors. And then it seems like oftentimes the victims here are more like the family members or the friends. This is a paper that I quote that basically says that most people, when they do drugs, are doing it with family and friends and someone else, a loved one, someone in their community. The drug dealer is not there when they overdose. So the fear that we have at the ACLU is that this is going to lead people to not call 911 because they're going to hear, this is the danger about this drug, is that people who support it are going to argue, well, we're only increasing the maximum penalty for a drug that's already in the books. The issue is that, like, we're talking about it now, and people are hearing that if I call 911 and my friend overdoses, I can be arrested and sent to jail for 60 years. So just having this conversation, having this in the media, is going to lead to less people calling 911. And when it comes to drug overdoses, as you know, it's a game of seconds. It's not a game of hours. So the time that it takes people to, hey, I'm going to get some distance away from my friend who's overdosing and then call 911, or I'm going to body dump in the or I'm going to body dump my friend at the hospital instead of calling 911. It's precious seconds that we need to stop an overdose. 
you, you mentioned Portugal already, but what would be an effective strategy to address uh, drug use deaths? So obviously here in Wisconsin, we're not going to go for a full decriminalization approach like Portugal did. But good Samaritan laws is something that we can do. And that's the ironic part about this bill is that if you implement a good Samaritan law, if the per- if 911 and respond- emergency responders get there in time and they save the person's life, then the person could be protected under a good Samaritan law. But then if they die, they'll get prosecuted under, under the land bias law. Which is when you think about it, like, it's, that's going to deter people from not taking advantage of a possible good Samaritan law. If people know that, hey, once I respond, or if emergency responders come a couple minutes too late and the person dies, I can be criminally charged for 60 years in prison, for up to 60 years in prison. Whereas if you give a universal Good Samaritan law that says, hey, if you call 911 on your friend or your family member who's overdosing, even if you're doing drugs with them, you're, you're immune from criminal prosecution, people are going to call 911, we can give the person who's overdosing Narcan and we can save lives. Because at the end of the day, this is about saving lives. And I think that like our legislators in an appearance to look hard on crime, which has failed for decades, has lost the true goal of saving lives. All right. I think that uh, covers all my questions. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to add about the, the subject? I think just recognizing that there are there are other states who uh, that approach this issue differently and have more expansive Good Samaritan laws that include a, a kind of the majority of drug-related offenses as as offenses that uh, an individual can get immunity from prosecution if they are calling 911 and and trying to to, to save a person who is is overdosing and our state does not have you know such a, a sweeping immunity protection so there are positive steps we can take but just changing a class B felony to a class B felony. A wild piece about this bill is that there is literally one letter that is changed in the Wisconsin statute. And that one letter crossing off a C and adding a B can have just devastating consequences and, and increase that risk um, of, of death because of um, folks' fear of, of calling 911. I think lawmakers need to readdress their goals uh, are we trying to save lives or are we trying to appear tough on crime and tough on drugs? I think if they take a second and actually consider what their goals are and they say, hey, my goals are I want to save lives, they'll take rehabilitation policy changes and not just try to incarcerate their way out of drug addiction. Filing public records requests, navigating open meetings laws, knowing what information you're legally entitled to, it can all be a lot to manage. Today on Transparency Talk, producer Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenek, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, discuss what to do when public officials won't respond to your records requests. Now, this episode is an oldie, but it's also a goodie. And as a reminder, this conversation is not intended to be specific legal advice, but rather a discussion of general legal issues. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by the president and founder of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, the open government wizard himself, Tom Kamenick. Tom, how you doing this week? It's a long line I'm at the end of, but uh, I always enjoy being connected. (laughs) 
I don't understand what that means, but I'm going to nod my head and agree. Uh, We got some good content here today. We're going to talk about the weird, awkward limbo between when you make your public records request and when you actually receive the request itself back, something that is affecting myself right now. I am currently waiting for a public records request, so I'm really looking forward to talking about this subject today. So let's start out here. I have made a public records request recently. Now I wait. Uh, So tell me a little bit about what the timing of the records request depends on. What should I know while I'm waiting for my request to be fulfilled? That's the big question, right? How long are you going to have to wait? Well, the timing depends on a lot of different things because unfortunately our law doesn't give a strict deadline. Our law says the records have to be turned over, quote, as soon as practicable and without delay. And what does that mean? I don't know. I have to quote it a lot. I write it down all the time in briefs and letters, and it doesn't really mean anything super strict. There's very little court guidance uh, that's out there. All they've kind of said about it is that they have to be making a, a good faith effort towards processing the request. So what might make it take longer or shorter? You know, How complex is your request? Is, is it difficult to figure out? Is it very broad? Does it require a lot of parsing through records? And closely related to that is how many responsive records are there? If there's two, you know, hopefully this can get done pretty quick. If there's 2,000, it's going to take a long time to gather them and review them all. Other things that matter are the size of the government agency. You know, are we talking about a, a state uh, state agency that handles these frequently, knows what they're doing, and has a lot of people working on it? Or is this your local town that gets one or two of these a year and doesn't maybe doesn't isn't super familiar with running through these record requests and otherwise sometimes there's a long waiting list agencies typically go through record requests in the order they're received Uh, so even if they're moving pretty quickly if they're getting 10 requests a week it might just take a while to get to yours okay so i made my public records request about three weeks or so ago uh how long should i wait before I follow up and tap that public official on the shoulder and say, hey, just a reminder, I submitted this public records request. Should I have done it a little bit ago or should I wait a little bit longer? What's the guidance here? One of the big questions is, did they acknowledge that they received the request and they'd be working on it? So if you if you don't hear back at all from them, I recommend people contact the agency in just a couple days to make sure you get that they got it. If you sent an email, maybe it went to a spam filter or you used the wrong email address or had a typo. If, if it went in the mail, well, we know how what uh, December and some of November was like for, for mail processing. Uh, sometimes that takes a while. So it's a good idea if you haven't heard back, get an acknowledgement, make sure they got it and everything went fine. Once you've gotten the acknowledgement, I recommend people wait about two weeks on most requests to say, and if you haven't heard anything back after the acknowledgement, uh, two weeks out, follow up, say, hey, just wanted to make sure that this was still being worked on. If you ask them if they have an estimate for when it will be ready, ask them if there's any difficulty or any problems or any clarification you can make. You know, stay polite in your uh, in your communications and, and see what's going on. If you're still not getting it after that, I recommend every week. And after that goes by for, for a while or so, maybe you're a month, two months out, you can start increasing the frequency. Uh, especially if it's a simple request that you'd expect to have done sooner than that. For follow-ups, I always always recommend people start with them in writing. You want to have a paper trail of what you've said and what they've said. 
but you do want to you do want to sparse in some calls or even personal visits if it's a local agency uh, to make sure that they realize you know this is a real person on the other side they're going to keep being insistent about this and if if I want to stop having to you know take a phone call on this every couple of days I'm going to have to get it done so a meeting in person or phone calls can be helpful too now, at what point should, like, the kid gloves come off? At which point do I actually uh, start making threats of action? Before I answer that, I want to put a caveat out there. People don't take litigation threats either in a friendly manner or in a serious manner. So if you make one, you are often going to annoy the person you're you're working with, the custodian that you've been communicating with, and it, it may just not help you in the long run. I don't recommend people make a litigation threat unless they have a lawyer doing it because it's they the custodians see those things all the time, people threaten them, and they're rarely followed through, so it doesn't have much of an effect. If you are doing something yourself, you want to be polite and firm, talk about maybe taking it to the next level, look at your legal, rec- your legal recourse, uh, but I wouldn't just threaten, I'm going to sue your butt off. Yeah, you keep it subtle, but still stay polite and firm. So... Say you do want to send send a threat, either yourself or want to have a lawyer do it. If this is a simple request and it's a fairly quiet agency that isn't flooded with requests, it should be done within a month. Unless you have a lot of records, it should, shouldn't take more than long in that longer than that. And I always think if it's a com- even a complex request at a busy agency, there's no excuse for anything to take more than three months for all but the you know extremely large record requests. If you're doing some you know, research into University of Wisconsin system-wide data, maybe that's going to take a long time to do. But for most practical purposes, there's no reason it should take more than three months. Again, this kind of thing should always be in writing. And then finally, we have the the big uh, final resort option here, a bit of not quite a nuclear option, but it is the last thing you should take up. At what point do I sue? Yeah, a lot of people who call in I have to decide, should these people send a letter or should we go right to a lawsuit? And sometimes I'll say it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's up to you. We could do either one in this kind of situation. But other times I'll tell people, no, you really shouldn't go to a lawsuit yet. Let's start with a letter. I, I usually don't consider a lawsuit a good idea if it's been less than three months. The sooner you're, you sue and file a lawsuit, the less likely the judge will be to think that suing was reasonable, that you sh- shouldn't have waited a little longer first. You will get your records after you file the lawsuit, but you might not get your attorney fees if you file too soon. Now, sometimes you can do it sooner. So if you're looking for a very simple single document, sometimes, you know, you just want a quick copy of a letter that you know exists or uh, an agenda from a meeting and they're just not turning it over. And if timeliness is important so you can explain to a judge why uh, kind of jumping the gun isn't un isn't inappropriate here, then maybe you can do an earlier lawsuit and file it at the at the one month mark or so. But very rarely would I ever go earlier than that. But part of it honestly depends on your diligence. Uh, have you been following up? Have you been polite and made sure that the record was received? Because if, if you come to me and you said, I made a request and it's been four months and I haven't heard anything back, I'm going to recommend sending a letter first to make sure it was received, make sure they understood what their obligations are. And not just jump to the conclusion that they're intentionally ignoring you and trying to mess you over. 
All right. Now I know how to handle my pending public records request. This is this has been a great episode for which I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thank you so much, as always, for joining me this week. You're welcome, Jonah. Always a pleasure. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. This week on Fishy Business, rookie fisherman Nate Carlin sits down with fishing guru Patrick Hasberg to discuss what to do if you're totally new to fishing. I'm talking right now with Patrick Hasberg from DNS Bait and Tackle on Madison's North Side, and we're going to talk about all things fishing. I am a very novice fisherman. I think I've cast a line maybe three times in my life, and I never actually caught anything. So this is going to be a little sure. different than, than usual, but why don't you talk to me about what fish are active right now in the Madison area? Yeah, so what you're going to find out there uh this time of year is a lot of bluegills up shallow. Uh, those fish are spawning, and so they're on beds, uh, which means they build little nests on the bottom of the lake, and they can usually be seen fr- uh, from shore or in a boat, of course. Uh, those fish are protecting their spawning areas, their little nests, and they're very aggressive. So uh, bluegills are easy to catch this time of year. Um, they can, that can be as simple a rig as just a, a small bobber with a little hook and a and a small redworm has been working really well for folks. And uh, is that, what kind of water would you find bluegill in? Is that mostly lakes? Yep. Yeah, all the area lakes around here uh, in the Madison area have uh, bluegills up spawning shallow right now. So uh, basically, you know, just go find a city park, and, and there's a pretty good chance that uh, if you can access the water or, or get down close to it, you're going to find bluegills out there spawning. And, and if I do catch a fish there, how would I know if it were a bluegill? Well, uh, you know, you could go on uh, the DNR's website. They have a fish ID page there where they list all or at least most of the fish that swim in Wisconsin. So you can kind of compare what you've caught there with uh, what you might find in the pictures online. Otherwise, um, just um, the, the thing about the bluegills right now is that some of them are, are, have deeper colors because they're spawning and they do that, uh, you know, like a lot of other species. They get all colored up this time of year, um, but they generally look like what you're going to find on the DNR's page there. Okay, so if, if I were fishing in the lake, that'd be the most likely thing for me to catch right now? Right now, that'd be your, that'd be your best bet, especially as an intro, intro uh, angler. <laughs> you're going to, um, it, you know, it's very straightforward. Just tossing a line out there with a little piece of worm on, on a bobber is uh, a, a pretty safe bet. But, of course, the Madison area is blessed with a lot of great Fishing opportunities for bass and walleye and pike, but uh, if, if whenever I get folks come in the shop that are new to fishing, I usually just kind of try to steer them in that direction to kind of get that uh, get the ball rolling there because the the learning curve gets pretty steep when you start getting into some of those other species. All right, what would be like the intermediate fish before we get to the advanced ones? What, what would be the next to try to catch? I would say bass. They're uh, pretty accessible, also from shore. And uh, just assuming that most um, beginning anglers aren't running out of, out of a boat. So, uh, you know, bass are also, you know, a pretty aggressive fish that uh, will chase down a lure. Um, and there's, uh, of course, a, a wide range of lures that you can use for bass. But whenever I have uh, beginning anglers that come in the shop, they, uh, they will, I'll, I'll try to point them towards things that are a little more straightforward to use. Maybe something that uh, has maybe a weedless option. So, uh, you know, they're not getting all tangled up in the weeds you're going to find out there this summer. 
Okay. So moving on to river fishing, would that be different types of fish or, or kind of the same? Generally the same species, but maybe a little different techniques because obviously you're dealing with current. Um, so, you know, uh, at least on the pantrish side of things, just drifting a bobber along with a little piece of worm underneath uh, can catch you just about any species that swims, really. A lot of times you can be surprised on a river because you just never really know what you're going to catch. But that also can make things really fun. But um, as far as um, lures for targeting specific fish, it's generally the same thing, but you just have to um, account for the current that uh, you're going to find in rivers. So I just want to catch a fish today for, for the first time in my life. How would I go about doing that for the best odds? Well, there are a lot of places that I send folks if, uh, if it's their first time, and especially if they have kids. There's some places where it's almost guaranteed that you can catch at least um, some smaller panfish. So I would send people off with a small hook, maybe some worms and a bobber, and uh, the area of uh, Winger Lake uh, near uh, the Vilas Zoo uh, is a great spot. Uh, lots of small bluegills in there, and they're usually very aggressive. Uh, the Tenney Park Lagoons are a great spot. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of other fishing piers uh, around the area at the county and the city have uh, handicapped accessible fishing piers that they put out for folks, and uh, all of those generally have uh, pretty good fishing opportunities there. So that's usually where I'll send folks. Well, all right. What what other is there any other like fishing news happening uh, in the in the lakes these days or in the waterways? Well, if anybody's going out fishing this weekend, especially if you're in a boat, uh, I would maybe stay away from lakes Monona, Wabisa, and Kiganza. There's a, a the professional uh, muskie tournament trail, which is a national organization of um, professional muskie anglers that hold tournaments around the country. Is actually in Madison this weekend. Uh, hosting one of their qualifying tournaments. So they're going to be out on uh, the lakes. There's 125 boats entered in that tournament. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of folks out there, um, you know, aggressively looking for muskies. Um, maybe aggressive isn't the right word because I'm sure they're nice folks. Uh, but, you know, there, there's just going to be a lot of boat traffic out there on the water. But uh, otherwise, summertime is just a great time to be out fishing. And, and, and like I mentioned earlier, we're really blessed here in Madison with just a great fishery for anyone in a boat or on shore. Forward Madison FC had a disappointing start to a very busy month, losing the first two of seven games scheduled from June 3rd to July 1st. Here, with more of the football, footballing flamingos, is Forward Focus. Hello again and welcome to WORT listeners both here and online. Welcome to another edition of Forward Focus, your bi-weekly segment on all things Forward Madison FC, Madison's and Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I am Grant Peters, assistant editor of FMFC-themed media outlet New Dog Mazine. I'm joined, as always, by the editor of New Dog Mazine and producer of Forward Focus, Andrew Schmidt and the Director of Public Relations for Forward Madison FC, Evan Warwick. As we always do during this segment, we will cover all things FMFC, from the action on the pitch to the vibes off of it. Forward Madison has had two matches since our last segment, an away match against rival Union Omaha, 
and the Pride Night match last Saturday against the cellar-dwelling Central Valley Fuego FC from Fresno. For more on those matches, Evan, take it away. Where we last left you listeners, Ford Madison was coming off a tough home defeat to Northern Colorado Hailstorm FC. The club then traveled to Papillion, Nebraska for a matchup against Union Omaha. To fully understand the magnitude of this matchup, let's first explore the rivalry between the Flamingos and the Owls. The MLB has Yankees Red Sox, the NBA has Lakers Celtics, and USL League One has Madison versus Omaha. Simply put, both clubs don't like each other. Being both from the Midwest, there's no Midwest nice shared between these two fan bases. No matter where the clubs are in the standings, FMFC versus Union Omaha always produces fireworks. The match on May 27th, no different. The match got off to a hot start for the Flamingos when midfielder Aiden Macias danced his way through the defense and scored a beautiful solo goal in the 14th minute to put the Flamingos in front. The elation from that goal only lasted a short time as Union Omaha leveled the match just seven minutes later. After a halftime break, Christian Cheney fired the Flamingos back into the lead with a defiant strike. Defensive reinforcements were brought in for the Mingos, and the match ended 2-1 in the favor of Ford Madison. Coming off that high of victory, FMFC returned home for a Pride Night match on June 3rd. Before the match even took place, over 500 fans participated in a bike ride around Madison devoted to the LGBTQIA community. With a club record 4,924 boisterous fans in attendance, Ford Madison jumped out to an early league via a strike from Christian Cheney in the first half. Controlling the match, Ford Madison then conceded to Central Valley Fuego off a goal in the 74th minute. With the match now level, Fuego used that momentum and capitalized off an 84th minute penalty to eventually defeat the Flamingos 2-1. I'll send it over to Grant for some post-match thoughts. After the crushing loss on Saturday to Central Valley Fuego FC, I was able to catch up with Mitch Osmond, the captain of Ford Madison FC, and ask his thoughts on the night. Not good enough. Um, I think they had two two shots on goal, two, two goals, one being a penalty, so... It's uh, it's hard to take, uh, but we didn't we didn't play well enough on both sides of the ball to to get a result today. Fans familiar with the game will know that when watching a team that is new or trying to find themselves, they will oftentimes play to the level of competition that they're facing. When I asked Mitch about this, he had this to say: I thought there were moments today where we looked like the team we want to be but it was just too few and far between uh, we didn't sustain it long enough to to go two or three up when, when we we probably could have um, and then like I said a couple of lapses in concentration cost us despite the disappointment from Saturday Osman was still bullish on the team's promise and prospects moving forward in the season it's not the end of the world yeah. <laughs> I think we've uh, we've shown in, in a lot of the games this season, what we can be. Um, we're definitely a new team and we're still, we're going to go through these things, you know, and, and it's going to show what we're really made of. Are we going to let it affect us to the point where it repeats over and over or are we going to learn from it and, and win more games because of it? With two tough losses in the last handful of games, 
I asked Mitch what his message was to the fans in order to keep hope alive. Oh, the fans, first of all, thank you so much uh, for the support today and, and every home game you guys showed out. And I think uh, it was a record crowd tonight and, and it's a credit to, to this community and, and we really appreciate it. Um, you have every right to be upset. You know, just <laughs> you, you come and you spend your money, you want to see wins. And that performance wasn't good enough. So, like I said, every right to be upset, but don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Like I said, we're, we're a new team. We're, we're working through some things, and, and I think we'll get it right. With the Fuego game in the rearview mirror, forward fan Oleg shared some thoughts on the match. Oh man, what a what a game it was. A heartbreak, I would say. We, overall, we played really good. We played much better than the other team. But let's, let's start with the positive things that I've noticed. First of all, is the individual plays of our players. Um, especially Cheney. Man, I, I, I just gotta say thank you for being on our team. The goal that, that, that Cheney scored, if you have not seen it, please watch. It's what we call the magic of, of soccer. The other thing that was positive was the good team chemistry. I feel like they understand what the coach is asking them to do for the game, like, and they just carry this plan out professionally and really good. Um, so good job on the team for that. We are doing really good build-up plays, especially through the midfield. Our midfield is playing phenomenally. A lot of our negative things that happened in the game were more systemic issues than just individual individual mistakes of our players because we did not use the opportunities that the other team have been giving us. Our team has a really good chemistry, really good connection with each other. A lot of our goals have come through this short ground pass through the middle where we could cut through the defense and score the goal. We have a good connection between Cheney and Bartman. They just click together the passes that they give to each other without even looking. They just have this telepathic kind of connection. The Flamingos return home to play league-leading North Carolina FC at Bree Stevens Field this Saturday night at 7 p.m. For WRT, this has been Forward Focus. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer was Peter Volder. Your script writer was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Faye Parks. And special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester, Tom Kamenick, Pat Hasberg, Evan Warwick, Grant Peters, and Andrew Schmidt. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Carlin produced this newscast. Nate Wegehout is the assistant news director, and Miss Shiley Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Walsh. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.